Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. As the Northern Hemisphere heads towards its second pandemic winter, some countries have already started to make third doses of vaccines available to their most vulnerable citizens. But scientists disagree about whether offering boosters is the best use of vaccine resources or necessary at all. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And also coming up on today's show, what the largest ever study on mask wearing reveals about how to protect people around the world. I think these results can help everybody who is vaccinated or not vaccinated, whether they are in a low-income country or a high-income country. And we reveal the winners of our latest book contest and hear the brightest proposals for how to protect the world's rainforests. But first, if you enjoyed our podcast, The Jab, here's the latest update on the global vaccination campaign from one of its hosts, our science correspondent, Alok Jha. It's Tuesday, September the 14th, 2021. More than 5.7 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. Thanks, Alok. Make sure to go back and listen to The Jab on your podcast app. The problem is, those vaccines are far from evenly distributed around the world. And even in the most vaccinated countries, the pandemic is far from over. Today, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced details of Britain's booster program. For over 50s and the under 50s who are at risk or more at risk, we're now motoring ahead with the booster program, a third dose six months after your second dose. Britain is not alone. Israel has just expanded its booster campaign to those over 40, and France began administering third doses for the elderly this week. Also, the United States and Germany are mulling plans to begin in September. But yesterday, a new expert review of available data published in The Lancet came to a very different conclusion. Natasha Loder is The Economist Health Policy Editor and co-host of The Jab. Natasha, thank you so much for coming on Babbage. Hello, Ken. Uh, Well, hearing Alok read out the weekly vaccination update really takes me back. The debate now in the rich world is focused on booster shots. Can you clarify, what exactly is meant by a booster shot these days? Is it new formulations to fight variants, or is it a third dose of the same vaccine, or an extra dose of a different vaccine, such as getting a dose of Pfizer for a person who was previously vaxxed with AstraZeneca? What is a booster shot in 2021 for COVID? So at the moment, what we generally mean by a booster shot 
is a third dose of the same vaccine that you've had already. That's not quite true everywhere. Some places have been offering a different shot of a different vaccine. For example, some countries gave Chinese vaccines quite widely and they've offered people a third shot of Pfizer. Third different doses are not happening very widely, but it is something that we should expect to happen more frequently in the future because we are doing trials at the moment, looking at combinations of different vaccines and our confidence in using this kind of mix and match approach will grow. And then certainly in the longer term, as companies introduce variant vaccines, we may actually see people boosting with variant vaccines. Now, there is a new review in The Lancet about whether booster shots are a good idea. Tell me more about this. The new paper in The Lancet is a review of what the science so far tells us about the need for booster jabs. And I put this exact question of what the Lancet Review said to one of the authors, Sumya Swaminathan of the World Health Organization. This piece is a summary of the discussions that experts had covering all the clinical trials and the observational trial evidence that's available up to now to basically see whether we have enough data to be able to recommend boosters as a general strategy. And the conclusion that the experts have come to is that at this point in time, we do not have the evidence to definitively recommend boosters for everyone who's had a primary course of vaccination. Now, the new review in The Lancet isn't a new study, is it? How did the authors come to their conclusions? So what they've done is they've sifted through published papers and they've weighed up the evidence that's there. Some papers will have strong evidence. Um, Perhaps they're the result of trials. Some will be weaker. Perhaps it's observational evidence that they've collected in the field. And so their job will be to weigh up these different pieces of evidence and come to a conclusion. And so that's what this expert group of about 18 people from big agencies like the FDA to uh, the University of Oxford, as well as the World Health Organization, have done. Natasha, the WHO isn't neutral on this issue. They have a moral position. How might that affect the conclusions of the review? That's a really good question, and that's one I put to Dr. Swaminathan. While there is a strong moral and ethical argument, what we are trying to point out here is that it's really the science that's driving the policies and that will continue to drive the policies. And I can assure you that the SAGE, which is a strategic advisory group of experts on immunization that advises WHO, who in turn then puts out recommendations for the world, is always and will continue to be driven by data and evidence and the science. And they're tracking this very, very closely. Got it. Now, this finding contradicts the way that many rich countries are heading at the moment. Why is that? Are other scientists advising in favor of boosters, or are governments choosing not to follow the scientific consensus in order to protect their own people? I certainly think that there's a lot of anxiety generally because people are reading about waning efficacy of vaccines. And so there's certainly calls for boosters. I also think that governments are quite aware that if they give these boosters more widely, you will suppress cases. You may not have a big impact on any of the kind of metrics that really count, like severe disease and death. 
but you will suppress the actual transmission of the virus, which could be important uh, for other reasons, for economic reasons, for political reasons. What you find when you read into reports about boosters being offered is that Governments are not quite as gung-ho as perhaps some of the media reports are suggesting. What you find is that many are actually doing a much more limited push. Israel has gone full in, let's just say that. But they're doing a much more limited push in most countries. They're simply saying that they want, you know, the very elderly and the immunosuppressed to have them. And they're also saying to their health services more broadly, get ready in case a broader push is needed, say in the over 50s or in the wider population. So you've got two things going on here, really. One is that they want to give a limited number of boosters for sure in quite a few places. And the second thing is there are concerns that as we go through the winter, um, with lots of other respiratory diseases causing problems in health systems, you could also at the same time start to see a real impact of waning immunity of these vaccines. And so they want to be ready to boost at that point. And to be ready when that happens, you kind of have to tell your health systems now, get ready to deliver boosters. So what is the latest thinking on how vaccine protection wanes and the role of Delta? And what does this all mean for plans to supply surplus doses of vaccines to poor countries? Well, these are two great questions. And this is something I discussed with Dr. Swiminathan. So there's a lot we know now about the immune response to this virus, but there is a lot that we don't know. I think it's fair to say that studies that have looked at cohorts over a period of time have shown some level of waning. This has also been observed in cohorts of people who had natural infection with SARS-CoV-2. And it was also noted that the older the individual, the greater the degree of waning. When people are given a booster shot, the antibody levels shoot up significantly. They really increase a lot. This indicates that the primary cause is generating a memory response and that any further exposure through the antigen, either through natural infection or through a a vaccine, is able to boost that immune response. That's very encouraging. We are now looking very carefully at the studies that are looking at what, what are called breakthrough infections. That's infections that occur in fully vaccinated people. And of course, the big change since January of 2021 has been that now the Delta variant is a predominant variant in most countries that are seeing a surge. So the Delta variant in studies in the laboratory has been shown to have a much higher resistance to neutralizing antibodies six to eight times compared to the original Wuhan strain of the virus. However, most studies of severe disease, hospitalization and death are very reassuring in that All of the vaccines so far seem to be protecting against these really bad outcomes. So put it another way, while efficacy against infection or even symptomatic infection may be reducing over time, and it's difficult to tease out how much of this is due to waning immunity, how much of this is due to Delta, protection against severe disease still is above 85 to 90%. So this is why we believe that it is premature to to encourage boosters for everybody because we do not know at this point how much a booster shot will reduce the incidence of severe disease in fully vaccinated people. But presumably one of the issues that you're concerned about is that if rich countries 
go ahead with widespread boosting, that this is going to limit access to doses in other countries. Do you think there is a sort of direct translation between what goes into the arms of rich countries and what goes into the arms of poor ones? Or is that just self-evident? Well, at this point in the pandemic, the vaccine supplies globally are limited. And while close to 6 billion doses have been administered to people worldwide, we know that the majority of those doses have been given to populations living in high income and upper middle income countries. It is important that the supplies that we currently have globally be used to prevent people from dying and getting very severe illness. This is the only way to bring down deaths and also to reduce the chances of new and more dangerous variants emerging. So Natasha, how does the current situation compare to what you expected the vaccination situation would be by now? How long do you estimate before everyone in the world has at least one jab? And what needs to be done to make that happen sooner? I had very much hoped we would be well on the way to vaccinating the first 10% of everyone in low-income countries and that many more hundreds and hundreds of millions of doses of COVAX vaccines would have shipped around the world. At the moment, they've shipped about 277 million. That should move up to about 400 million in the near future. But the big problem we've had this year is India has essentially slammed the door shut on vaccine exports and has instead this year vaccinated 600 million of its own citizens. Those are vaccines that we were expecting by and large, to distribute more widely. And other companies that had made promises to deliver to COVAX this year have had trouble scaling up production. So, you know, very broadly, COVAX is facing a 25% cut in its supply forecast for this year. And at the same time, rich countries have a huge surplus of vaccine. So what we're getting is a sort of very, very unequal world. I always expected an an unequal world. I guess the sort of degree to which that that is still true as we enter the last quarter of 2021 is very disappointing. Natasha, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ken. Without a vaccine, the best way people can protect themselves from the virus when out and about is to wear masks. The thing is, it's not always easy to convince them to do so. In many places, the sight of a mask covering both the nose and the mouth is a rarity. You sometimes see it below the nose so that people can breathe nasally and obstructed, or it's almost acting like a chin strap underneath their beard. It's doing everything that you can try to do to comply with the rules without actually doing anything meaningful to prevent disease. But now, a new study done in Bangladesh is the largest ever to investigate mask efficacy, and it has found simple ways to encourage people to mask up. It's actually a test of mask effectiveness in the real world. Laura Kwong is one of the study's lead authors and an assistant professor of public health at the University of California, Berkeley. This real-world trial that involved, you know, 600 villages, it wasn't in a laboratory. It is in the communities. It was in rural Bangladesh, and there were 350,000 people. It really helps us better understand, in the community setting, with imperfect mask use, how can it protect people against COVID? So why Bangladesh? 
One of our co-authors, Mushrik Mubarak, is from Bangladesh. His family lives in some of the study districts. He has worked in Bangladesh for a long time, as has Steve Luby, the infectious disease doctor on the study. And we have strong connections um, with the Ministry of Health and other government agencies that were participating in the project with us. And you know, this information is really important for places with lower vaccination rates, such as South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and places outside the United States. So this was done to help people who don't have vaccines. That doesn't just mean people in high-income countries. Do people wear masks in Bangladesh? <laughs> this is a, a good thing to keep in mind when you're doing research. If you ask people what they do, and you're asking them about a socially desirable behavior, oftentimes people will say yes. In phone surveys, 80% of people said, yes, of course we're wearing masks. But actually, when we sent out people to street corners to observe if people were wearing masks, it was 50%, but then later on it became 20%. And so we said, this is really an area where we could increase mask wearing, not through mandates, but through small incentives and social pressures and free distribution of masks. So how did he go about it? What did the study entail? We have what we call the NORM model. N stands for no-cost mask distribution at households so that we would know that everybody has a mask and everybody else would know that everybody has a mask, right? It's accessible. O stands for offering information. When we did that household visit, we offered information that COVID is not just an urban disease. It can occur in rural areas as well. It doesn't just cause you to cough. It can also cause deaths. And that was kind of a hidden fact because earlier on, COVID was quite stigmatized. People didn't want to say that their relative had maybe died from COVID. So just providing information that masks could be helpful against COVID. And also some important leaders, the prime minister, the national imam, the leader of the training academy there, and a popular cricket star in Bangladesh. They also encouraged people to wear masks. R was for reinforcement. So we had people on the street that would see someone who wasn't wearing a mask, maybe tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, you're not wearing a mask. You know, do you need another one? We're happy to give you another one if you promise to wear it. M was for modeling, modeling by religious and community leaders. So the imam on Friday would talk about the importance of mask wearing and we would distribute masks at the mosque before people went in for Friday prayers. So what did you find out? In intervention villages, COVID fell by 9%. In intervention villages that had surgical masks, COVID fell by 11%. And for people over 60 years old in those villages with surgical masks, COVID fell by 35%. Now, how can these findings help poor countries with little access to vaccination and fewer resources? I think these results can help everybody who is vaccinated or not vaccinated, whether they are in a low-income country or a high-income country, because this really shows that masks can prevent us from getting COVID infections, right? And this study was carried out when the alpha variant of COVID was circulating, and now we have a delta variant. And we know that sometimes people who are vaccinated can get the delta variant too. So we can carry the same logic over that masks prevent COVID infections and assume that they can protect some against delta two especially for unvaccinated people, but even for vaccinated people. There is a question to what degree masks can protect against Delta because the shedding is much higher. And so we're conducting a follow-on study to look at masks' effectiveness against Delta in the next coming months. Now, are the findings aimed at helping poor countries that don't have access to vaccines and few resources, or is it more general than that? We did this study in South Asia because there are a lot of people in South Asia that aren't vaccinated yet and the vaccine rollout is slow. But certainly we're all humans and COVID affects humans in similar ways. So the results can be generalized from Bangladesh that finds that mask wearing reduces in COVID infections to places outside of Bangladesh. Professor Kwong, thank you so much. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. 
For more analysis on the latest developments in the world of science, technology, and beyond, remember that listeners can get a special introductory offer on subscribing to The Economist at economist.com slash podcast offer. You'll find the link in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to tell them Ken Sencha. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Now, regular listeners to Babbage will have heard the ecologist Meg Lohman on our episode of August 31st, revealing some of the incredible secrets of the world of trees. Meg calls herself an arbornaut, an explorer of this magical eighth continent in the treetops above us, which is also the title of her new book. And she offered one lucky Babbage listener the chance to win a copy of her book by answering the following question. If you could change just one thing to conserve tropical rainforests and ensure that everyone in the world followed it, what would it be? Thank you so much for everyone who wrote in. We got hundreds of thousands of—okay, we got around 100 different replies. But we've been thrilled, inspired, and delighted by your answers. They include— Cutting out some of the worst offending products from diets, such as beef and soy, or intermittent fasting to reduce consumption, and improve not just ecological health, but personal health as well. Reducing the impact of agriculture, from vertical farming and hydroponics to circular harvests in the concrete jungle. Harnessing the power of the tech giants and social media influencers to make rainforests wholly sacred. And that any business contributing to deforestation should have that tree physically deposited on their doorstep and have to process it themselves until people become so desperate that they pay to stop it. But our finalists are Joseph Galagos, who wrote, I would invent a sustainable, cheap alternative to palm oil. It's used everywhere from chocolates to candies to soaps and to lotions and the profits would go towards buying out former palm plantations and converting them back to native rainforest. Kevin Crowley was a finalist for his suggestion that people who want to benefit from the rainforest can only do so with what they have harvested with their own hands. This would limit industrial logging and even help support indigenous communities while allowing the rainforest to regenerate. Antimo Di Donato and Derek Lydon got extra Babbage points for both employing open-source intelligence. They each suggest ways to make people more aware of vanishing forests, like using satellite mapping and images to post visual obituaries on social media, illustrating the flora and fauna lost in real time. At The Economist on Babbage, we get very excited about open-source solutions, and then we encourage all of you listeners to check out our episode on open-source intelligence from the 10th of August. But our winner and future Arbornaut is Michael Uckelman of Melbourne, Australia, for his proposal 
of a personalized carbon offset tree economy. Okay, now hear it out. If there are nearly 400 billion trees in the Amazon rainforest and a little over 7.5 billion people in the world, that gives each person around 50 trees. Then everyone on the Earth gets a basic emissions budget, and anything above that must be offset by the carbon credits you get from your trees. Can't offset your consumption? Well, either there's massive fines or you participate in the tree economy. Want to drive your car to work? Eat steak every day? Circle the world in your private jet? Better find some more trees. People in poor countries may have some to spare and can sell or lease them to the rich. Now we're not only saving the planet, but we're also fighting inequality. Perhaps demand for new trees will soar, and savvy developers will abandon office buildings and start reforestation projects. Startups will bioengineer new super carbon-absorbing tree variants to sell for a premium. Others will improve vertical gardening to fit ever more trees into even smaller spaces. More trees, less CO2 emissions. Wouldn't it be nice? Yes, Michael, we love it. And your copy of The Arbonaut is on its way. And to everyone else who wrote in, thank you so much. You, dear listeners, are what makes Babbage what it is. So keep listening and stay in touch. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can reach us at podcast.economist.com. The producers are Amika Shortino-Noland and Juliette Jabkiro. Nico Raufast is the sound engineer. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, always wearing my mask, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.